Good morning. We're going to turn to John chapter 20. Thank you to the Hall family. As soon as you guys finished, I heard Gene behind me say, that's going to be a tough act, tough act to follow. John chapter 20. Their 79th sermon in the Gospel of John. And uh, I think we'll probably finish up June 12th, which for me is sad. I know some of you have said that too. It's been a great time to study through this gospel. And uh, so thankful for God's word. John chapter 20, verses 24 through the end of the chapter, verse 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we praise you for your goodness. Lord, we heard the testimony a moment ago that Liz Yergler's brother, at 98 years old, coming to faith in Christ. And Lord, we rejoice in that. Lord, that, let that be a reminder that it is never too late, that a person is never too old to find life through Christ. And so we praise you for that story lord we thank you for a new brother in the lord lord we pray for our time today as we continue to study in your word and we are pointed once again to the truth of the resurrection of the lord jesus that we have a savior who died yet who lives and may that be our eternal praise in jesus name amen thomas 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 Aside from Judas, who's obviously the most notorious of the apostles, Thomas gets a pretty tough grab. He's called Doubting Thomas because, while Jesus had appeared to the rest of the apostles, he has not yet appeared to Thomas, and Thomas is skeptical and makes demands of the conditions on which he will believe. There are places in the Bible where we see skepticism, but rarely, if ever, is it so brazen and demanding of proof as we see from Thomas. In the passage, Thomas says that he won't believe that Jesus is risen unless he can personally interact with him and see Jesus and touch the wounds on his hands. 
In modern times, it reminds me of people who attempt to demand scientific proof before they'll believe any of the claims about God or about Christianity, and who otherwise remain in a state of unbelief because their imposed criteria has not yet been met to their own standards. So the plan today is to look at this passage where we'll see Jesus appear to Thomas and his belief in the resurrection, and then we'll talk about the reasons that we have for believing in the resurrection. Before we get into the passage, just a couple of brief notes on Thomas. As I said a moment ago, he's often nicknamed Doubting Thomas because of this story. Now, among the disciples, Thomas is not one of the major figures. He's not like John or Peter who are major figures, where you see them featured in different stories in the Gospels. In fact, in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Thomas is mentioned just once in each of those Gospels, and that comes in a list of the apostles. He is featured more in John's Gospel. We see him speak in chapter 11 before they go to the place where Lazarus is buried. In John 14, a question from Thomas prompts one of the most famous statements from Jesus in this entire Gospel. Jesus has told the disciples that he's leaving to prepare a place for them. John chapter 14, verse 5. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus responds in the next verse with, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Thomas also has a nickname that John continues to mention throughout this gospel. He mentions it in our passage today. He mentions it in chapter 11. It'll say it one more time in chapter 21. When he brings Thomas into the story, John likes to say that Thomas was called the twin. Some translations of the Bible will say Thomas called Didymus. Didymus is the Greek word for twin. Um, And that leads to believe the obvious that Thomas had a twin brother or sister. Anyway... Jumping into our passage, and again, the first about half of, the, of our time this morning, we're going to go through the passage, and then we're going to talk about reasons to believe. So, starting in the passage, verses 24 and 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas was not with the disciples on Easter evening. And so he didn't have the same experience as the rest of the disciples. And he didn't see Jesus when he had appeared to the group. Now, we've all missed out on things before. A gentleman from our former church we attended in St. Louis uh, in the 1980s was at a Cardinals National League Championship Series playoff game with his mother, who wasn't a huge baseball fan, as I understand the story. And so they ended up leaving a little bit before the game ended. And as he got to the car, he could hear the crowd cheering when Ozzie Smith hit a walk-off game-winning home run, and he missed it. A few years ago, my dad and sister were at the Ohio State game against their rivals. I don't even say that word, but the Wolverines. My sister had to work, so they had to leave before the game ended. Ended up going to double overtime. Obviously, Ohio State won, and they missed it. 
I read about a man in Canada who went to buy lottery tickets in 2015. The cutoff to buy tickets for that night's lottery was 9 p.m. Any tickets printed after 9 p.m. would be dated for the following week. He requested tickets at 8.59. The first ticket printed out at 8.59, dated for that night. The second ticket printed for seven seconds after nine. It had the winning numbers for the wrong week. Not a winner. We all have things we've missed out on, but no one has ever missed out on a bigger moment than Thomas. Jesus himself appeared before the disciples and Thomas missed it. Now, I mentioned this last week that the disciples meeting together on Easter Sunday, meeting together on Sunday, that it prefigures the church. So really, in a sense, the moral of the story, don't miss church. (laughs) And I say that a bit tongue-in-cheek, but I do see that as a secondary theme in this passage, that the disciples were together and saw Jesus together as a group. Thomas wasn't there, and he missed out. Now, at this church or any church today, Jesus isn't physically appearing before us. But there are special blessings that come through the church. It is nurturing to our faith to be in the company of other believers. You can't have true fellowship from a distance. The activities of the church are communal. Things such as communion. Communion is something that we do in fellowship with believers. Baptism is an activity of the church. And as a reminder, two weeks from the day, we're doing baptisms. It is something that Christ requires. Christ commands. He requires it to be obedient to him. He commands it for his followers. If you've never been baptized, please talk to me. It's an activity of the church. Swimming pools open up next week or a lot of them do, for Memorial Day weekend. You could go under the water of the swimming pool and come back up. That doesn't mean you just got baptized. It's something that you do as a church. The Holy Spirit equips us with spiritual gifts for the purpose of building up the church and serving the church, which requires being part of the church. In the New Testament, you have all of these one another statements. Those are statements for the church, where it says things like, love one another. Bear one another's burdens. Serve one another. They presuppose being in fellowship with other believers. It requires fellowship. A lot of churches, including this one, a couple years ago during COVID, had to do a couple of weeks of online services. But for us, it was always meant to be, and for really every church, it was always meant to be temporary. To meet together. Because it's important If you remember when that happened, the ban was lifted on a Thursday. We met that Sunday because it was so important that we couldn't wait any longer than we absolutely had to. Because the fellowship of the church matters. Worshiping together. There is no substitute for being together physically in the same space. Praying together as a church. Interacting with each other. Every Sunday morning, we have a prayer time before the service, which, by the way, if you've never come, you're certainly always invited. We meet at about 845, 945, don't come at 845, 945. 
And we, this morning, we're just observing how much of a blessing it is to us to be able to come and to pray for one another and to have our prayer requests heard and to do that as a group. The blessing that comes from that, interacting with each other, hearing the word of God proclaimed and taught together as a church, watching a pastor on TV or listening to one on the radio, that's all well and good, but that isn't your church. Now, I think everyone here understands that, but some people don't. No matter how good the teaching is, that is not a substitute for the church, because church is not just a sermon. It's also the fellowship with people who know you, who know your family, who know your life and what's going on in it, and who care about you. And as we've said, it's also important to our spiritual well-being to be in fellowship with one another. The Christian life is not a solo sport. It's a team sport, and we are never called to go it alone. So Thomas misses the first church gathering and misses out on the opportunity to see the risen Jesus on the first Easter. And he's in disbelief. He says, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Demanding the conditions on which he would believe. Now God owes us nothing. He doesn't owe it to us to prove himself. It is our job to recognize the Lord and his glory in our own sinfulness. Verses 28 and 29. Actually, verse 28. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. When John says eight days later, he's referring to the following Sunday. Kind of like how Jesus rose on the third day. Even though he died on Friday, rose on Sunday. In our understanding of time, that's two days later. First century Greco-Roman time reckoning, part of a day counted as the full day. So, died on Friday, day one. Saturday, day two. Rose Sunday morning, day three. When John says eight days later, he's counting from Easter Sunday, eight days forward, which would be the following Sunday. And the disciples are gathered together on Sunday. And Jesus once again comes into their midst. And he says, peace be with you. Just like he had said to the disciples the previous week. And purely out of his grace and kindness to Thomas, Jesus allows Thomas to personally see him. Verse 27. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. That is what Thomas had demanded, and Jesus makes that offer to Thomas. Verse 28, Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. He immediately believes. I mean, Jesus is right in front of him in the flesh. The text doesn't even say whether or not Thomas actually touched Jesus' nail marks or his side even though he was given the opportunity, but that he believed. Verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus points to the faith of Thomas, but actually commends the faith of those who will believe in Jesus who have not seen him. 
Because most people who have believed in Jesus have not seen him. Thomas had the testimony of the other disciples, but would not believe based on that alone. But for the church, ultimately, that is how the gospel spread. As the disciples preached and wrote down their accounts of Jesus and the New Testament, that got passed throughout the church, and that is the gospel that has continued to be spread throughout the age. And so in that sense, we believe because of the accounts of the disciples. We must walk by faith and not by sight. The apostle Peter, who saw the risen Lord, said in 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Jesus appeared to the disciples. And based on 1 Corinthians 15, we know that he appeared to more than 500 people after the resurrection. And those post-resurrection appearances are essential to our faith. But the purpose for the resurrected Christ is not to go around for the rest of the church age and appear to everyone at will. Because the gloriously resurrected Lord Jesus ascended to heaven where he rules and reigns with God. But he left witnesses. As I said, his disciples who went into the world to preach the gospel some of whom wrote down their accounts. Thomas initially refused to believe the word of the disciples. For us, we have the scriptures which point us to the risen Jesus. We have the preaching of the word which communicates the message of the risen Jesus. Jesus also sent his spirit as another helper into the world to convict the world of sin and to bear witness to Christ. And so we come to the final two verses of the chapter, and it's a fitting capstone to these resurrection appearances. Verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. Verses 30 and 31 are really kind of the thesis statement for the entire Gospel of John. Now, in this Gospel, we see really... In in all the Gospels, relatively few appearances of the risen Jesus written about. And they're covered briefly. John gives us three. At least, you see Jesus appear in chapter 21, but it's to people who had already seen him in chapter 20. Chapter 20, we see Jesus appear to Mary Magdalene. We see him apply, uh, appear to the disciples not including Thomas, and then we see him appear to Thomas. So that's three times where somebody sees Jesus for the first time risen. And again, the other Gospels, it's one, two, three times. Relatively short stories. But that's because, in part, the limitations of writing in the ancient world. In the first century, writing material, materials were expensive. Most people couldn't even read or write. Anything going on paper had to be copied by hand. They could not chronicle every single event that happened during Jesus' life and ministry and resurrection appearances. 
So John says Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. And that is to be expected, because not everything could be covered. Verse 31. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That is why John wrote this gospel. John writes about Jesus, writes about his life, his death, and his resurrection, so that we can believe. The end of chapter 20 is a fitting place for John to put in this comment. Right after Thomas had his doubts, we see John saying that he gave all of this account to help people believe in the one who promises life. John's gospel doesn't end here. But again, chapter 21 shifts from Jesus making his resurrection appearances to Jesus making his final preparations for the church for after his ascension. Now, we have a few more moments, but I wanted to take us back to Thomas's doubts. Thomas wanted to actually see for himself. I'm sure that we would all love that, too. But that's not how Jesus has chosen to reveal himself to the church after his ascension. In the beginning of our time, I mentioned that scientifically minded people and how there are some who will use their need for proof to justify unbelief. And that's not to say that all people who are scientifically oriented think that way. Many scientists are devoutly religious and devout Christians. But some who demand certain types of evidence, because they don't feel like they have that, feel like they can't believe. I'd argue that there is evidence. There is evidence for God. We've talked about that before. And there is also evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. Ultimately, we must rely on faith in believing that Jesus is the Lord who died and rose for our sins. And while that is an act of faith, it doesn't mean that it's a mindless faith. Because there are actually very good reasons to believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Gary Habermas, who's a historian and New Testament scholar who teaches at Liberty University. From 1975 to 2003, Habermas surveyed 1,400 scholarly works on the resurrection of Jesus. These include conservative scholars, liberal scholars, some who were Christians, some who were not. 1,400 works on the resurrection gives you a pretty good cross-section of what scholars have to say about it. And from his research, Habermas catalogs 12 facts about the resurrection in the early church that are so widely agreed upon that they're generally not questioned by serious academics. Habermas calls these the minimal facts. To list these, first, Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. Second, he was buried, most likely, in a private tomb. Third, soon afterwards, the disciples were discouraged, bereaved, and despondent, having lost hope. Four, Jesus' tomb was found empty very soon after his internment. 
5. The disciples had experiences that they believed were actual appearances of the risen Jesus. 6. Due to these experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed. They were even willing to die for their belief. 7. The proclamation of the resurrection took place very early from the beginning of church history. 8. The disciples' public testimony and preaching of the resurrection took place in the city of Jerusalem, where Jesus had been crucified and was buried shortly before. 9. The gospel message centered on the preaching of the death and resurrection of Jesus. 10. Sunday was the primary day for gathering and worship. 11. James, the brother of Jesus and a skeptic before this time, was converted when he believed he also saw the risen Jesus. And 12. Just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, became a Christian believer due to an experience that he also believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. Now, we're not going to go into detail on all 12 of these. But I want to touch on a few of these ideas and the historical background for why they are so widely agreed upon. Starting with this, that Jesus died by Roman crucifixion. All four Gospels mention that Jesus was crucified. A skeptic could argue, well, yeah, the Gospels are written by people who believed in him. But we also have early accounts which corroborate the crucifixion from people who were not Christians, such as the first century Jewish historian Josephus, who writes about the crucifixion. Tacitus, who was a historian in the second century, also talks about the crucifixion of Jesus. The Talmud, which are ancient Jewish rabbinical teachings, refer to a man named Yeshu being killed on the eve of Passover. A Jewish writer named Mara Bar Serpian refers to Jesus being killed in a letter that was likely written in the late first century. It's been argued that the fact that Jesus was crucified might have greater historical documentation than any other fact about Jesus. So you have four Gospels. You have religious documents of other faith traditions. And you have ancient people who were not Christians who all speak to the historicity of the crucifixion. The crucifixion was not some distant event to them. It was recent history. Second, Jesus' tomb was found empty very soon after his internment. The Gospels mention that Jesus was buried in a tomb after his crucifixion. The bedrock of Christianity is the belief that on the first Easter... The tomb was empty because Jesus had risen from the dead. Now, it's really interesting. If Jesus was crucified and this tomb was found to be empty, what happened to the body? Think about it. If someone could have presented the body of Jesus, the whole Christian movement would have collapsed. But no one could. If Jesus was still dead... All his opponents would have needed to do was to exhume the body and show that he was still dead. People knew that Jesus died. They knew where he was crucified. They knew where he was buried. Why not just point to the body? Skeptics like to say, well, maybe someone stole the body. Who would do that? Jesus' opponents? And thus give credence to the idea that he'd been raised from the dead? Or his followers? 
It makes no sense that the disciples would steal the body of Jesus and then live the rest of their lives and go to their deaths spreading the message that Jesus had risen from the dead if they had known that it wasn't true. Some skeptics have argued maybe they went to the wrong tomb. Then someone who hadn't believed would have gone to the right tomb and proven them wrong. Also, the question doesn't explain the numerous resurrection appearances of Jesus and why the apostles said that they had actually interacted with the risen Lord. The empty tomb is not simply a disappearing act, but it is a precursor to seeing the risen Jesus. There are also things in the Gospels which point to the historical credibility of the empty tomb. For instance, all four Gospels mentioned that the tomb was discovered by women. And I've talked about this before, but as a reminder, in first century Jewish culture, women were second-class citizens. They couldn't even give admissible testimony in a Jewish court. So it is highly unlikely that somebody would lie and say that women discovered the empty tomb. Why would you invent such a detail? The Gospels say that the empty tomb was discovered by women because it was discovered by women. Three. Due to their experiences, the disciples' lives were thoroughly transformed. They were even willing to die for their belief. Aside from John, the Apostle John, who wrote the Gospel of John, the rest of the disciples were martyred for their faith. Once again, consider these figures in the Gospels. The disciples are not exactly the varsity team. During the ministry of Jesus, they often don't understand him. We see their flaws and imperfections. We see them abandon Jesus when he's arrested. Oftentimes, they really don't look very good. Yet, they all have such dramatic conversions after Jesus rose from the dead, and they were willing to die for that belief. To borrow from Josh McDowell, no one dies for a lie. A person can die for something that turns out to be wrong, but no one dies for something that they know is wrong. What was to be gained by the disciples? Again, they were persecuted. They were social pariahs as they preached a new faith and a new message. They weren't starting megachurches and getting rich. People in the first century in Judea, and this is something I probably don't mention enough, most of them were just abjectly poor. They weren't getting rich off of this story. They had lives of privation and difficulty before facing brutal deaths from those who were hostile to the faith. There was nothing to be gained from spreading a lie about Jesus having risen from the dead. And it makes even less sense if they themselves knew that it was a lie. Charles Colson, some of you I'm sure know that name, was an attorney for President Richard Nixon. When the Watergate scandal happened in 1972, Colson was one of the administration officials to fall. He would go to federal prison for his involvement. Shortly before his imprisonment, Colson became a Christian. He would later go on to found a ministry called Prison Fellowship. He authored several books and started a daily radio program called Breakpoint. Colson died in 2012. But I love this quote from Colson. I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. How? Because 12 men testified they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. 
They would not have endured that if it weren't true. Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep alive for three weeks. You're telling me 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. Fourth, the proclamation of the resurrection took place very early from the beginning of church history. Again, the gospel is not some fairy tale that starts way off in some distant past, once upon a time. The stories are being told and written down in real history. The earliest books written in the New Testament are the writings of the Apostle Paul. Jesus died between about AD 30 to 33 in that range. Galatians, probably Paul's first letter, was written between AD 48 to the early to mid 50s. Letters like Philippians and 1 Corinthians were likely written in the early to mid 50s. And those letters contain early Christian creedal statements which were already in circulation at the time of Paul's writing. There's also the oral tradition of people telling the gospel story, which is really how the gospel most predominantly spread in the early church. Now, the early creedal statements revolve around the death and resurrection of Jesus because that is the most central aspect of the Christian faith. It is that upon which our faith stands or falls. Something else that's significant about the early dates of these writings is the fact that they're within the lifetime of the apostles and of many who had seen the risen Lord. Again, we're not talking about stories hundreds of years later. We're talking about a gospel tradition that spread rapidly. Paul talks about this early development in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 6, when he says... For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. The fifth minimal fact is the conversion of Paul himself. Jesus, I'm sorry, just a few years later, Saul of Tarsus, Paul, became a Christian believer due to an experience that he also believed was an appearance of the risen Jesus. I just read from 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul talks about all of these resurrection appearances of Jesus. Paul will also say that Jesus then appeared to him. With the disciples, a skeptical person could argue that they loved Jesus and were therefore biased. But how do you explain Paul? Paul hadn't been a Christian. Quite the opposite. He was a violent persecutor of the church. He was a Pharisee who was hostile to Christianity. And yet, he has a dramatic conversion and becomes the most prolific missionary of the early church and writes about half the books in the New Testament. In his writings, Paul talks of a dramatic conversion event where Jesus appeared to him and called him to be an apostle. It's recorded in the greatest detail in Acts chapter 9 by Luke. As with most of the rest of the disciples, 
Paul was so dramatically converted that he was willing to die for his faith. During his ministry, he was beaten multiple times, he was imprisoned multiple times, and was ultimately martyred because of his faith in what he had seen. Again, skeptical people can look to zealous believers of other faiths, about people for Islam who have killed themselves for their beliefs, and say, well, what's the difference? The difference is that the apostles and Paul said that they had actually witnessed the risen Jesus. One of the minimal facts that Habermas cites is the fact that this tradition we also see very early on from Jerusalem itself, which is also striking, that that is the very place that the sites that are being talked about are places that people could actually go to. That numerous people mentioned in the New Testament are historical figures who we know existed as real people. Again, none of these prove the resurrection, but it's all very striking. That Jesus was crucified, his tomb was empty, his followers had radical conversions. Throughout the region and to the ends of the world, the story spread about Jesus' death and resurrection. And even his opponents came to faith. None of that proves that it's true. But I would argue that it makes more sense than the alternatives. That the gospel of Jesus Christ stands up to scrutiny. It stands up to questioning. Thomas demanded that he examine Jesus himself. While we can't do that, we can examine the facts ourselves. And when we do that with an open heart and an open mind, it points to the truth that Jesus died and that he rose. Because the Savior of the world lives, there is life for all who believe in him. It is a faith that is rooted in history and grounded in reality, that Jesus really died, that he really rose, and that he really promises eternal life to all who believe in him. What is the resurrection to you? It's either true, and it's the greatest truth that can be known, and you should orient your life around it, or it's false and ultimately doesn't matter and you're wasting your time being here. There is no middle ground. What do you believe? The gospel is not just some quaint story. It's not just something that we tell ourselves to make us feel better. The gospel is the greatest truth that the world can know. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the resurrection. We thank you that we have a Lord who lives, who is risen. Lord, there is so much death and sorrow and sadness in the world. But may we be pointed to the world's true hope. That Jesus is alive. That the tomb was empty. And he promises life to all who believe in him. In Jesus' name, amen.